Well, CFC, today we find ourselves in, as I've been saying, I feel like almost every week uh, as we go through the book of Revelation, a controversial chapter. Surprise, surprise. Uh, I would ask you uh, for, to join me in prayer so that our hearts are ready, but also our minds. Uh, if you're a note taker, you're probably not going to be able to write down everything I say. Uh, I just hope the recording works, okay? We can always play it back later, but let's uh, dive in together. Father, we, we trust you, Lord, in your wisdom that you've given us some things that we get right away when we're believers and other things we might be trying to figure out until in person you explain all of it to us, Lord, and uh, we pray that we wouldn't grow weary in the task of studying your, your scripture, and that today you would bring some greater clarity, shed some more light on what we have, and allow us to walk away from it today with at least the things that are clear and true and orthodox and um, uh, encouraging to Christians everywhere from every time. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we're going to specifically talk about a passage where uh, Christians debate about the future. We call, we call that eschatology, study of the end times. So if you want the theological term for it, it's eschatology. But it's end times, what happens in the future, what's it going to be like. And all orthodox, small o, not Greek orthodox, but all non-heretical uh, Christians from all times and all places agree on the basics of the future, from our earliest creeds. We can be encouraged that Jesus will return and put down all opposition, all wickedness. Jesus will return and put down Satan and all his followers. Amen? All right, so if we disagree on finer points of those details, that's intramural. But if we disagree with that, you've got a big problem. So specifically with this text today, Revelation chapter 20, we're going to learn that Satan will lead one final mass rebellion against the church, but we can be confident that Jesus will do away with him forever. That is a glorious truth that we cling to. What we don't agree on are some uh, finer points within that, especially with regard to this chapter, and the biggest point of disagreement probably is what to do with the so-called millennium and by millennium we don't mean millennials people that were born after gen xers we're not talking about that what we're talking about with the millennium is a 1000 year period that is mentioned in the book of revelation it's only put that way in the book of revelation and it's only put that way in one chapter in the book of revelation we get it one time so the millennium simply means a 1,000-year time period. And Christians are divided between taking it as a... I'm going to just give you two broad positions, right? Christians are divided between taking the millennium as a literal time period in the future. So today we're going to imagine this whole platform as a timeline, and I'm standing where we are today. Or maybe I'm standing in the church era, okay, from between Jesus Christ. Ascension, resurrection and ascension, and b but before his return. And one position says the thousand years is not where we're at now, it's the next thing before the last thing. Right? 
So we've got Jesus ascended, and then we've got a time where the church is expanding and growing, and people are getting saved. And then there's a rapture where Jesus takes Christians up, and then there's a seven-year tribulation, or maybe there's a tribulation, then a rapture, or maybe the rapture's in the middle. They, that's an intramural, intramural debate between them. But church age, rapture, seven-year tribulation, then Jesus puts down the nations. We saw that last week, right? Chapter 19. Then a millennium of Jesus reigning on the earth. It's perfect until Satan leads a final, final rebellion again. And then Jesus again puts down the nations, but for real this time, and then the new earth. That is called premillennial. Why is it called premillennial? Because we are living now pre that millennium. Premillennialism is that position where we're, we're still waiting for that 1,000 year period of Christ's near perfect reign. And I say near perfect because it's not totally perfect. It's not the new earth yet, it's the this earth, but populated by Christians. Many who are, have their glorified bodies, but they also coexist with other Christians who were alive at that time, not dead when Jesus returned. And they're Christians, but they don't have the glorified bodies yet. And uh, it's also not fully perfect because Satan gets to lead a rebellion again. If it were fully perfect, Satan wouldn't have anyone to lead a rebellion. But it's, so it's near perfect, but it's not fully perfect. And then the new earth is perfect. That's the premillennial position. And that's probably the... Today, the most common position, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but if I ask any of you to raise your hand, what did you grow up with? Well, it's 2023. I can just tell you what you grew up with. Between, uh, especially from the early 1940s and forward, in 1948 when Israel was back, forget about it, man. It, pre-mill was hot. And then when they had the series of scary movies that they would show kids like me on Wednesday nights with creepy beasts and raptures and planes falling out of the air because the pilot was a Christian and antichrists and all these kinds of beasts coming out of the ground. Then after that, you had the Left Behind series, which was hugely popular. And then behind it, you've got certain institutions that rah, rah, we are, it's got to be pre-mill. It's got to be pre-mill. Now, Christians take this very seriously. It is not foreign even to CFC for someone to not join us because of that. So, whether we want to call it a finer point or not, many Christians elevate this to enough of a thing where in order to be a part of our denomination, you've got to hold to this. In order to be a part of our church, you've got to hold to this. You are maybe not anathema, but you've got some real serious spiritual problems if you don't hold to pre-mill. And um, I have recently finally let go of the pre-mill position. What is the other position? Well, it's referred to as amillennialism. Amillennialism is a tricky term because the, the prefix ah usually means no or not. So like if something is amoral, it's without moral, right? And amill sounds like no millennium. <clears throat> what it means is not that there is no millennium, but that there is no future one that we're waiting for. Well, where's the millennium? Now. It's this age now. So Jesus ascends. He promises to come back. The church is growing. And then at the end of our church age, Satan leads a final climactic rebellion and Jesus returns and puts them down once and for all, not 
part one, but then another one later. There's no other period of a near-perfect earth. There's just what we have now and the new earth. And the way we get from what we have now to the new earth is Jesus' return, where he rides the white horse, he's got the sword, fire's coming out, all the enemies are put down, they're thrown into the lake of fire, there's the great judgment, which we'll see next week. So it's a, a kind of a simpler timeline. That's Amil, okay? Pre-mill Amil. Now within those, there's finer ones, and we're not going to go into that because we've got to get to our text. But the brief definition is that premillennialism believes in a future earthly time period for the thousand. The thousand years is a future earthly time period. And amillennialism believes that the millennium is a current heavenly time period. That, that millennial reign of Christ is from heaven. Christ is reigning from heaven. Whereas the premills believe Christ is going to reign on earth in that physical thousand years. Okay, you with me? All right? Okay, hopefully... Uh, we're together on that, and some of you have, that have been with us through the series and in our CFC courses, this is a little bit of review, so I don't want to belabor it too long. What I want to do now is get into our passage today, which is Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. And um, I've recommended many books throughout this series on Revelation. I'll give you one more, which is uh, by an author named Sam Storms. If you're interested in the amillennial position, it doesn't seem familiar to you, you want something where you can spend a long time reading it, this is a, a, a pretty thick one. It's called Kingdom Come, Kingdom Come by Sam Storms, and uh, reading that book has helped me kind of put the thoughts together for this. All right, let's do this. Let's read Revelation 20. We're only going to do the ten ver- first 10 verses this morning. The first 10 verses, because uh, we've got to make a couple of pit stops along the way, that take longer than normal because of all these debates and um, all of the controversy surrounding a couple of thoughts here and those two positions battling it out uh, for Christian's attention that I just went over. So I'm going to read the 10 verses straight through. Keep in mind you've got two different ways to take it. This is either going to happen in the future or it's happened already slash happening now. Those are the two options. I'll read the 10 verses and then we'll take it kind of one chunk at a time. John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ, for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison 
and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up and over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. Easy, right? All right, think of these. If you're using the ESV, you probably have what I just read in three paragraphs, which is fitting for today because those are three scenes, I'm going to call it. And we're going to move through these three scenes in order. First, we're going to see that Satan is bound for a very long time. Whichever view you pick, Satan is bound for a very long time. Then we see that believers will reign with Christ during that long time that Satan is bound. Believers are reigning. All that throne imagery, right? And then finally, the third paragraph, it goes back to Satan. This is almost like one of those sandwiches we talked about. What's going to happen to Satan? What's happening whilst that's happening to Satan is what's going on with the saints, the thrones, uh, the believers, the martyrs, and then back to what's going on with Satan. So that third paragraph, we're going to see Satan is defeated at the climactic final rebellion. And that's verses 7 through 10. All right, so let's take one of those paragraphs at a time. Most of our time will be on the first paragraph. We'll do a little less time on the second, and then the third will be faster. Okay, I just want to give that heads up because the length of time we'll take on the first one, I don't want you to think we'll be here till 2. We might be here till 2, but uh, Satan is bound, so we're okay. You'll get that joke later. Okay, uh, let's move through these scenes one at a time, starting with the first three verses, okay? I think the best way to understand this is that this is not a prediction of the future, a future binding of Satan, but one that happened in the ministry of Christ at his first coming. In other words, the Amil position is that Satan, what this text is saying is that Satan is bound now, currently awaiting his release for a final rebellion. So let me walk you through a couple pieces of, I think, evidence to, to substantiate that. The pre-mill people might be right. It's not a matter of salvation, but I, I want to walk you through at least some argumentation for seeing it this other way, which I think is more consistent with how we've been seeing Revelation unfold this entire time. Now, we just were in chapter 19, right? What happened in chapter 19? All the nations got put down. All the wicked people got put down, right? Okay. Now, in the pre-mill view, they think chapter 20 happens after 19 happened. Right? So 19 happens. Jesus comes riding his white horse, puts all wicked people down. Then you have a thousand years of peace. Then you need new rebellious nations. Now, remember chapter 19, he put down the kings, the captains, the big ones, the small ones. Remember that? From top to bottom, Jesus tore them all up. They all became bird food. Remember that? But then at the end of the thousand years, you need new rebels, new kings, new wicked leaders, new governors, new captains riding many horses. And, and in 20, we see they're, they're a great, great number. This Gog and Magog deal it's a lot of people. It's not like 25 people. So at the end of this near-perfect reign of Christ, there's a rebellion that's as bad or worse than you had before that near-perfect reign. So Jesus, physically reigning on the earth, still sees a wicked mass rebellion of people a second time. If it goes chronologically, chapter 19 happens, Jesus rises white horse, defeats nations, 
Then chapter 20 happens and you see nations defeated again. You kind of have two second comings, see? And you have two put-downs of wickedness, two put-downs of nations. Or chapter 19 is seeing it from one angle, switch the camera, and I'm showing you the same thing from another angle. If that's true, chapter 20 begins with the past, not the future. At some point in our past, Satan has been bound. And during this church age now, Satan is bound. Now, for some of us, we're like, he doesn't seem bound. Let me get to that. I'm just trying to explain the position. So, if Jesus has already destroyed the wicked, here's the first point. If Jesus has already destroyed the wicked and Satan is no longer deceiving people, in verses 1 through 3, what nations does he lead in rebellion at the end of the millennium? That's a problem for the pre-mills. Amils have problems too, but that's a problem for the pre-mill position. For the Amils, we see three Armageddon texts. You don't have to go there, but you can mark them down to check it out later. It's in chapter 16, then 19 where we just were, and then 20 where we are today. Three Armageddon texts. You know what I mean by Armageddon? The big final battle in the end, all right? Not a Bruce Willis movie, okay? That hasn't stood up well against time, I don't think. But anyway, in chapter 16, if you remember, it was a a ways back now, but in chapter 16, verses 12 through 16, God's enemies are called the kings of the whole world. Remember that? And the dragon, you're, you're going to remember this because it's weird. The dragon lets out demonic spirits in the form of frogs. Remember that? Because it's using Egyptian plague imagery. So the enemies are the kings of the whole world. And the dragon lets out, this is chapter 16, the dragon lets out demonic spirits who, quote, go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. That already happened in chapter 16. Then when you get to chapter 19, where we were last week, the enemies of of God, the enemies of the church, are kings, captains, mighty men, free, slaves, small, great. And they are gathered for, quote, the war in 19, verse 19. And then now in chapter 20, uh, that third paragraph, 7 to 10, you can see it there. The enemies are the nations at the four corners of the earth. Here they're called Gog and Magog. Magog, To look, verse 8, to gather them for battle. So how many Armageddons are there? If we go, this happens first, then this happens next, then this there's no change of camera angle. This is a different time period. It looks like three Armageddons. Three gatherings of the nations. Now, primos will probably say the first two are the same ones. Well, then why is the third one different? Well, they get hung up on other things. Like, well, this one says he's bound. Okay, we'll get to that. But at least you can admit that there's at least two, not three Armageddons. But that's because you see 16 and 19 as the same. And you're refusing to take 20 as the same. That makes sense? For the Amil, it is a little easier. We're like, in 16, we're like, that's Armageddon. That's at the end. That's when Satan leads his mass rebellion. When we're in 19, we're like, oh, we're back at the mass rebellion again. Right? When I'm telling a story to my kids, and I'm like, you know, when I met your mom, they're like, oh, you met her again? Because yesterday you were telling us about when you met mom. No, man, I'm back to when I met mom. Right? So when John returns to this mass rebellion where Satan, through his demons, are, he's gathering kings and captains and armies to launch this final attack against the church, and that's when Jesus rides in with his white horse, it's different camera angles for the same scene. Now in chapter 19 and chapter 20, John is, uh, you can just write in your margin if you write, or if you're taking notes, Ezekiel 38 to 39. That's where we see this imagery. Okay, and if you're hanging out in Ezekiel 38 and 39, that's one thing, 
and then to take that to Revelation, and every time John is referring that one thing, we're breaking it up into two or three things, and that doesn't really make sense. Ezekiel saw it as one thing. I think John sees it as one thing. He's just giving it to us in three different spots. Okay. Now someone's going to ask, and we'll get to the binding of Satan in just a minute, but I think this is important. Someone might ask, if the millennial reign of Christ is now, why isn't he here physically reigning yet? And why is there still sin? And why is there still rebellion? How can you call this the kingdom of Christ? Reigning now? No, that doesn't make sense. It's got to be future. Well, the answer is Jesus' kingdom is now and it's coming. Now and still not yet. At the same time. That's how Jesus talks about the kingdom. When did Jesus say that his kingdom is here? When he was here physically in his first coming, he already said that it was here then in numerous passages. I'll just walk you through a couple of examples quickly. When did Jesus say the kingdom was here? Well, Jesus would say the kingdom is near. Sometimes he would say it's near, it's close, it's at hand. Honestly, that doesn't sound like thousands of years later when the millennium starts. It sounds like pretty soon, like when I go to the cross. That's when the kingdom's upon you. In Matthew 12, 28, you remember they were accusing him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus, he said, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Past tense. So they're like, the only way you're able to cast out demons, Jesus, is by the power of demons, by the power of Satan, essentially. And Jesus' answer is, that doesn't make sense because Satan would be divided against himself and kingdoms don't divide against themselves. That would be a self-defeating kingdom. No, actually Satan has a powerful, smart, strategic, scheming kingdom. He's a, a, a tough foe, impossible foe for people, not for God. But, he says, if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons now, I'm casting out demons now by the Spirit of God. If that's true, then the kingdom is already here. So is there wickedness? Is there sin? Do we still have rebellion? Do we still see wars and rumors of wars? Yes, but not like it was before, not like it was before the church broke onto the scene. It's different now. All the parables that Jesus talked about, seeds that sprout, the seeds that get sown and it's growing, those are kingdom parables. He's not talking about the millennium. Nobody believes that. Oh, the parable of the sower, that's the millennium. I can't wait. It's now. The, the kingdom is taking root. The kingdom is expanding. The kingdom starts small and is growing into a tree and other people flock to it. A lot of talk, passages talk about entering in the kingdom of heaven later. There's a future side to the kingdom, but there's a now side like Luke 17, 20, where Jesus is being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. He answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Now, if the kingdom is basically just the millennium, he's physically there. He's in Jerusalem, whatever. He's on a physical throne. Jesus is there physically. You know that's going to be on the news, right? Like satellites are capturing that and we're all going to be texting it to each other. It's observable. But the kingdom has already broken in in an invisible way. Jesus just said it right there in Luke 17. Jesus expressly said in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting 
that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. That's a familiar text. You already get this sort of otherworldly aspect to the kingdom. That's not later. That otherworldly aspect is now. But if his kingdom is only future and it's only viewed as a physical earthly millennial reign, then that wouldn't make any sense. So don't get me wrong. Pre-mills also believe the kingdom is both now and coming. They do believe that. But what I'm pointing out is it's not weird and it's not inconsistent to understand that Jesus' kingly reign is right now. In fact, pre-mills and amills both believe it's now. It's just not full yet. They both believe that later there's going to be a new earth where Christ's reign is physical and perfect. So both sides believe the kingdom is now, in a sense, and the kingdom is perfect in the new earth. The only disagreement is that amills say there's a now reign and then the perfect reign, and the pre-mills say there's a now reign and then a near-perfect interval, and then finally the perfect one. That's the difference. But the fact that the kingdom is now, both sides hold to that in a sense. But the pre-mills have to do the work of explaining how there's two earthly reigns later, one that doesn't last and then one that does. They have to explain how Jesus returns once to put down wickedness but not wipe them out and then wipes them out finally later. They have to explain how Satan leads a rebellion from people who have been dwelling in peace under the physical reign of Christ for a thousand years. Primals have to explain how some people make it into the thousand-year reign with resurrected bodies, and other people have still have their corrupted bodies. They're still, I guess, catching colds and whatnot. And they still marry and have babies. And so you've got resurrected and unresurrected saints living together, and then the rebellion has to come out of those babies. They have to explain how even though we already had an age of kingdom growth, we already had an age of kingdom expansion, and we already had a rebellion of all the nations that gets put down in the end, we need another sequel to repeat the whole thing just in a shorter time frame. They have to explain that. The Amil see it as one and done. All right, now, the kingdom is now and it's coming. Got it. So I guess that makes sense. The millennial reign is now. We're reigning now. Okay, all right, let's say you, you're there. But how is Satan bound now? That tends to be the big one. How is Satan bound now? In what sense... Is Satan currently bound for the Amil? Pre-mills believe it's, if he's bound, uh, it can't be now because clearly Satan is active. I mean, as Peter says, he's roaring like a lion. He's walking around. He's looking to pounce on people. I mean, um, Paul tells us that we, we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against principality. How are we battling them if their leader's bound? Like that, to the pre-mill person, that is hard to grasp. But Amils make a lot out of the phrase that you see in verse 3 right here. You see this key to the bottomless pit. you got this great chain. Obviously, this is all symbolic. Nobody that I know of actually believes that Satan is a physical dragon and that an angel is going to come with an actual physical chain made of adamantium uh, for you Marvel nerds, you know, and he can't break the chain and he's in a physical pit. No, it's symbolic. He's not a spatial being. He's a, he's a spirit being. He's not in a physical pit that confines him but it's symbolic he's restrained he is captured he is limited he is uh, put away not killed but put away for a long time represented by this thousand years now uh, Amil interpreters take this one of two ways pre-mill guys say look he's bound in the future obviously he's totally active now he's totally off the leash now Amils will say, no, he's bound now. 
And how they answer that is a couple of different ways. One way to answer it is that the text says that he's not able to deceive the nations. That's how he's bound. He's not bound from tempting you on your car ride to work. He's not bound from looking for weak Christians to snatch them up in some cult. He's not bound in those ways, but he's bound in doing the Gog and Magog thing. He's bound to not do Armageddon before God says you're allowed to do Armageddon. Two, verse three, he threw him in the pit, sealed it over him so that he might not do what? So that he would not deceive the nations, not deceive individuals, not use trickery anymore, but lead whole nations. Now, remember we talked about that sandwich? Bread, little meat in the middle is the saints reigning on the thrones, the martyrs, and then back to the other piece of bread. If it's same, same, then that third paragraph talks about how does he deceive the nations. When he's let out, he deceives the nations by gathering them together and saying, let's kill the church. Let's wipe out Christians. And that's when Jesus comes riding the white horses. No, you're actually going to be the one that gets wiped out. So what is he bound to not do? If he's not physically bound and he's bound in a spiritual sense, what is the thing that he's bound to not do? It's to lead Armageddon before it's time. That's, why he, that's how he's bound. The other option, uh, actually, uh, before I move on from that, just to, to help you out a little bit, I think we have a few verses on the screen that, that help with this. Um, well, this is the other option. This is the other option, and it's related. Satan is no longer able to deceive the nations wholesale, blocking the gospel's penetration into those nations outside of Israel. So the argument here is before Christ came and bound Satan, before Christ came and bound Satan in his ministry, Satan was off the leash, and all the nations were shrouded in darkness. You can go to Russia and go to church. Right now, you can vacation all over the world and find the church. It might have to be underground, but you could, you can, if you know people, you can go to church on Sunday almost anywhere in the world. That was so far from true before Christ's ministry. You, couldn't, you could hardly found, find believers in Israel. You're not going to go to church in uh, these uh, other places outside of the scope. That's, that happened when the gospel expanded. So before Christ came and bound Satan... People, much more people were demonized. How did Jesus have so many exorcisms to do? Because people are walking around demon-possessed. It was a dark, dark world that Jesus broke into. We take it for granted now. Is it still, there's still, still darkness? Yeah, there's darkness now. But there's also light. There wasn't before, not much. They were hard to find. Remember when Elijah wanted to just die? And God is like, hey, there's like 7,000 other guys He's like, well, where are they? I don't see them. And that's in the hub. Travel the world, you're not going to find it. So here's a few verses just to help drive that home. Acts chapter 26, 16 to 18. I think we have these up for you to look at. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, Jesus Uh, To appoint you as a servant, this is Jesus to Paul, to appoint you as a servant and to witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. To do what to the Gentiles? To open their eyes so that they may turn from what? Darkness to light and from who? The power of Satan to God 
that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Did Paul go, what are you talking about? That's already been happening. That is not happening at all. Paul started that, right? And that's what Jesus is explaining to him. I'm going to send you to these dark places that are, have been shrouded in darkness and now light is going to pierce it. This matches what we've been reading all along throughout Revelation. Satan is very limited in what he can do to attack the church. But before the end, he has a lengthened leech to do more damage. We've seen, haven't we, demonic forces coming out of the sea, demonic forces coming out of the abyss, spewing sulfur and smoke. Remember I used the phrase, all hell is breaking loose? What is that? It's restraint and then opening up that what? That pit that was sealed and now is not sealed anymore and frogs are coming out. And what are they doing? Leading the nations together to work together to attack the church. Armageddon. So I think chapter 20 is just recapping from a different angle. uh, And this angle focuses not on the prostitute, not on the beast. We got those already. This angle focuses on Satan himself and his defeat as the dragon. Plus, Jesus already said he bound Satan. Luke chapter 10, we have this up for you. Luke chapter 10, 17 to 20. The 72 returned with joy. The the disciples returned saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Was that true before? It was not true before. They're shocked by this. Wait, we can cast out demons? And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Have we seen that in Revelation? Yes, that's the binding. That's the controlling, the, the restraint. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. We've seen serpents and scorpions in Revelation. And over all the power of his enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your name, names are written in heaven. So Jesus is saying, the reason why you're able to cast out demons, and the reason why you have this power as the church, is because something I did caused Satan to fall. He's cast down. He doesn't have the same authority that he did before. You remember when we talked about a moment ago when the Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons? Here's the uh, a fuller version of the text, Matthew 12, 28 to 29. Jesus says, if it is by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom has come upon you. What's the next verse say? Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first does what to the strong man? Same word. What's it in the Greek? Same word in the Greek. Binds. Who's the strong man here? Satan. Who's binding him? Jesus. What does it explain? The onslaught of the church that the gates of hell cannot prevail against. Then indeed he may plunder his house. This is Jesus saying, I've come here to start the church, not to take over physical thrones, but to start the church that presses out into all the world and darkness gets pushed back as light continues to push back the darkness with the gospel of Jesus Christ, freeing people not just in Jerusalem, but Gentiles all over the world from the power of Satan, who is now extremely limited. So extreme is the difference between what Satan can do right now and what Satan was able to do before Jesus' earthly ministry of the cross. It's like binding him and throwing him in a pit. That's how different it is. It's not saying he doesn't exist, that he doesn't think, that he doesn't scheme, that he doesn't plan, and that he can't have influence on a person or a church, but he cannot lead the nations to gather together in a global attack upon the church. And in this understanding, he can't shroud whole nations in darkness anymore. You can kill Christians, martyr Christians, outlaw Bibles, 
check our bags at the airport, missionaries are going to pierce through with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it can't be stopped. God won't allow it. I'll give you just a couple more. John chapter 12. Jesus says, or uh, John writes, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw people to myself. When is, this, when is Satan cast out in this verse? When Jesus returns? Looks like the cross, right? When Jesus is lifted up from the earth, on the cross, a kind of defeat happens where Satan is cast out. Cast out of what? Well, cast out of his position of authority where he holds everyone in darkness, and now he can't anymore. The casting out of Satan opens the door for the cross of Christ to draw who? Look what it says. I will draw who? Everybody. All people. To the, to the farthest reaches and corners of the earth, I will draw people to myself. Satan cannot hold that back. He can't hold the truth from the Gentiles any longer. Real quickly, Colossians 2.15 says on the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers. On the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them into open shame, triumphing, triumphing over them in it. And then just a, a couple re- weird ones. You could write this one down. This one's not on the screen. The next one I'll give you on the screen, and then we'll move on to the next piece of the chapter. If you scroll back in our website to my series on 1 Peter 3, you want to know more on this, I'll, you can get it there. But here's this really weird weird verse where Peter talks about Christ. He suffered for sins. The righteous, Jesus, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why did he do it? So he can bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but then he's made alive in the spirit. Okay, so far so good. And then Peter says, in which Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now some people think, oh, that means Jesus went to hell and talked to people in prison. You can go back to that sermon where I argue that almost assuredly spirits here is demons. Almost assuredly, spirits, spirits is almost always, if not always, you got to go back to that message, used of demons, these demons that are in prison. Now, here's a parallel text, Jude 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. So what kind of angels are these? The fallen ones, the bad ones? He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until judgment of the great day. I'm tempted to just rest my case and move on. When are the demons in gloomy chains? Now. Until when? Until the last day. So if we, have, if we quibble with the fact that spiritual evil beings are bound now, quibble with Jude 6. He said it right there. And then you've got to wrestle with 1 Peter 3. You've got to make that humans or good angels, but they're in prison, so it can't be good angels. It's a mess. Unless you kind of let go of it and go, yeah, I think it's demons. And what is Jesus proclaiming? His victory on the cross. That's what he's proclaiming in 1 Peter 3. An important note for you to consider is what's the purpose of the millennium? And I'll do this real fast. On the pre-mill view, on the pre-mill view, the purpose of the millennium is to fulfill land promises to Israel. Let's just be real. Okay? Your pre-mill people, especially your dispensational pre-mill people, they're the ones that are following politically what's happening in Israel. They're the ones that got all excited in 1948, even though Israel didn't repent to get the land back. So I don't know how that's a fulfillment of the promises in the Bible. 
I'm not being anti-Semitic. I'm just, I just believe in total depravity. And that the only way out of that is to return to Christ, not to a physical, geographical portion of this earth. But why wouldn't God fulfill those promises before the millennium? Or why doesn't God fulfill those promises in the new earth? Why do we have to have this interval period for promises to happen to Israel? And just so you're aware, in this interval thousand years for the pre-mill, the temple is back, sacrifices are back. You know how Christians debate about not calling this the altar? Protestants don't call this an altar because that's not the body of Jesus. Right? Any former Catholics? You with me? That is not sacrificing Jesus again. We don't call this an altar. So Protestants are, make a big deal against Catholics saying, no, 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 we don't sacrifice Jesus again because there's a once-for-all sacrifice. But then they believe that in the millennium you got a temple, you got priests with ephods and we're dragging animals, we're killing, slaughtering them in our church service. We're going back to something that Hebrews said is done with because Jesus took care of that once and for all. I know, but it's a memorial. No, this is the memorial. Jesus said, I'll drink this with you again. But on the Amil view, it's easier to answer. What's the purpose of the millennium? The purpose of the thousand years, which means a, a big, long chunk of time, is the same as the purpose of the church age. Jesus, together with all the saints that endure to the end of their lives throughout the church age, reign and rule over this kingdom that has come and continually advances, growing, seeing converts all over the globe until Jesus finally returns and puts down wickedness forever. That's the purpose of the millennium. It's the growth of the kingdom, getting as many people in the ark as we possibly can before the rain comes. It's a clear answer. So, verses 1 to 3 took up most of our time. I promise the rest will be faster. But we see that Satan is bound for a very long time, and I think that long time is now while the church is expanding, which we see a little taste of in verses 4 through 6. Aren't expanding? Aren't people dying? Aren't people being beheaded? Yes, but that is how we conquer. That is how we reign. And no matter how many Christians you behead, the thing grows. I mean, Rome heavily persecuted Christianity, and then Rome became Christian. It, it plays out this way. Then he saw thrones seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. There are lots of interpretation as to who, who are on these thrones. I think they're saints, but I'm going to spare us all the details on that because it's not quite as hot of an issue uh, in the debate. But he sees thrones seated on those who have the authority to judge and committed. And some of those souls were those who were beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God and those who would not worship the beast, right? They made it to the end, and even though they were beheaded, they came to life, verse 4, the end of verse 4, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed are those who share in the first resurrection because the second death can't touch them. That's what it's saying. And they will reign with Christ for a thousand years. Now, I want to do this... uh, not as long as we did the previous part, but this is a problem. This is a problem, people will say, for the Amil position because you've got, uh, it looks like you've got two resurrections. And the pre-mill guys will say, well, there's a resurrection uh, for believers, and then you have the thousand years, and at the end of the thousand years, you have another resurrection of unbelievers, or maybe unbelievers slash those who got saved in this in, in middle, middle time. So you have two resurrections. And I don't think, That's what this passage is saying. I think this passage is saying something different about the resurrection. Here's how Amils can take it. One option 
is that this is talking about the life that saints experience after the first death. When the martyr gets beheaded, he doesn't stay dead, he gets life. And that he gains life in a, in a spiritual way, in a, in a heavenly dwelling. And that they'll dodge the second death by the second resurrection, which is when they get their physical bodies. So the first resurrection is your salvation. It's being raised from the dead. It's you were dead in your sins and trespasses, and then you're made alive in Christ. That's your first coming to life. And then later, you get your body back, which is the second resurrection. Uh, you can see parallels from this verse, chapter 20, verse 4, with chapter 6, verse 9. And in chapter 6, verse 9, it's clearly talking about disembodied saints. The wording is almost the same. Look at verse 4, but I'm going to read you chapter 6, verse 9. So put your eyes on 20, verse 4, and I'm going to read you words from chapter 6, verse 9. John says, I saw the souls of those who had been slain. Here it says beheaded, they're slain. For two things, the word of God and the witness they bore. See how it's the same thing? Now, in chapter 6, everybody agrees those are saints that are in heaven. But the pre-mills say in 20, it has to be people on earth. I think we're still talking about people in heaven. They got killed here for their faith, but they got life. That's the first resurrection. And the second resurrection is when they get their bodies. I want to push forward a little bit here, but there's another option. And one that I'm very open to is that the first resurrection is the resurrection of Christ. How could it be the resurrection of Christ? Look carefully at what it says in verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. So the Amils that believe this, they, the argument goes, you don't share in your own resurrection, you share in the resurrection of someone else. And so the first resurrection are those who share in that first resurrection, which is Christ's. And then because Christ's first resurrection and we are identified in him, which includes that spiritual coming to life, then we get the promise of gaining the physical resurrection in the future. Here is, I think, the final verse we'll put up on the screen, and then we'll start wrapping things up. Uh, John chapter 5, 25 to 29, up here on the screen. And here's what I want you to see. I want you to see how there's two coming to life, two resurrections, if you will, in this passage in John 5. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here already when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, now most people take that and go, yeah, even pre-mills, they'll take that and go, yeah, that's when people are spiritually dead and then they're born again, right? They hear the voice, the, the, the voice of the Lord breaks into their life. The, so, the seed of the gospel is sown in their life and they accept it and they bear fruit. They come to life. Then he says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. He doesn't say is now here. This time he just says this part is only coming when all who are in tombs, well, now we're talking about physical death, they hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so here you see the first one, they hear the voice of the Lord, they come to life. We call that regeneration. Paul, I think uh, John here is calling it the first resurrection. And then you see the second resurrection, which is coming out of our tombs. Okay? So all, all I'm trying to show you is that you can easily put this together. It's not an obstacle. It's not really a big hurdle. So let's wrap this up. In the first three verses, Satan is bound for a really long time. What's happening during that really long time where Satan is bound? Believers are reigning with Christ from heaven as the kingdom is expanding 
on earth and the kingdom is gaining people. Even if they're beheaded, they gain life and they escape eternal death. Then finally in 7 through 10, we see Satan is defeated at the climactic rebellion, which we already unpacked at length in chapter 19. But this is a recap of it. And we see this climactic battle from a different angle. The the thousand years are ended. Satan is released from his prison. Uh, Released to do what? Deceive the nations. Gather them from the four corners of the earth. Not a nation called Gog and a nation called Magog, but Gog and Magog represent all these nations, all these kings, these wicked captains and rulers and mighty men from the least of them to the um, greatest of them. And their number is like the sand of the sea. It's not like a thousand people left at the end of a thousand years. This is, this is like a, a massive uh, army and rebellion. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth. Uh, what plain on the earth can fit that many people? Probably none of them, and we're back to figurative language. We don't have to start pulling out the globe and figuring out what plain could fit however many people are numbered like the sand of the sea. Fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. I thought Jesus has a sword. Now it's fire. Do you think a sword is actually hanging out of Jesus' mouth? Because then you have other problems. This is symbolism. And it's, it's the, the clear, powerful put-down of evil, specifically verse 10, the devil who had deceived them, who led this rebellion, he's thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. A quick note right here. Some people will say, well, the beast and the false prophet were thrown in chapter 19, and then after a thousand years, now Satan is thrown where they were. Do you see it there in verse 10? Satan, the dragon, the devil, is thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were already. They were already there. Ha! So you do have two rebellions and you do have two battles. In the first battle, Jesus comes riding his white horse and he puts down everybody except Satan. The beast, Babylon, the false prophet, the Antichrist, they all go into the lake of fire. Then after the thousand years, Jesus takes the devil and throws him into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet already were. And I think at first glance that sounds like a strong argument, except if you're reading this in the Greek, it says... The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet. That's it. It doesn't say were. It doesn't say are. It doesn't say will be. It doesn't even have a verb. So in your basic first semester of seminary, you probably learned that the best way to fill in the gap is reach for the nearest verb. Not just supply one and see if it fits your theology, but what... What was just happening here? Okay, the nearest verb is were, so the ESV gets it right, but not already were, is, it, is were thrown. They were also thrown. If you put the word also there, it's amil. If you put the word already, it's premil. Does that make sense? Probably not, but that's okay. All right. Um, so that's, you, can, you, can, you can look at that and go, okay, it doesn't have to mean that the beast and false prophet were already there for a thousand years waiting for the devil. It can mean that he also threw them there in the same place. And it's all past tense because this whole vision is in past tense. Okay? So for the Amil, all these people, nations, false prophets, what the beast represents, uh, Babylon, the devil, the angels, all followers, all unbelievers, they're all thrown in the same place at the same 
time. Here's what's important to take away from this. What all Orthodox Christians throughout history agree on, and that's what I started with, Satan will lead one final mass rebellion against the church. Now, some people think the, the next thing you're going to experience is a secret rapture, so we're not going to be around for this great rebellion. Uh, but most positions believe that the next thing on the calendar is some kind of mass rebellion against the church. This has shaped my theology a little bit. I grew up thinking that I can be in the middle of a shower. I can be in the middle of mowing my lawn, and then zap, you know, and then things are gone. But in this position, we see that, okay, it can happen fast, but it's probably not going to be uh, a blink of an eye. Nations are going to mass together, and that might not take years. I mean, look how fast the world changes when a virus hits. You know, look how fast things change when a piece of technology is invented. So it can move really fast, but especially for the Amil position, the next thing on the calendar is this mass rebellion. But even everybody else still believes in the mass rebellion. That They're just arguing about what comes before that, if there's an intervening time before it. But we all believe there's going to be a mass rebellion in the end. Don't be a part of that rebellion. Don't go with the crowds. Don't believe everybody that's like, rain coming, that's stupid. This guy building an ark, what an idiot. Don't join them. Join the guy that looks crazy, working on the ark and talking about rain that's coming. Be that guy. Join up with that guy, who, of course, is fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus Christ, and the ark is his cross, his death, and his resurrection. I want you to be encouraged not to get discouraged by leaning into these debates. I think it's important to get into these debates because it's important to understand Scripture, but do it humbly, but don't do it lazily. Do it humbly. Some people get too far into eschatology and then they get all cocky about it and they wear the t-shirts and then they start leaving churches over it. But some people go, ah, I'm so frustrated by all the eschatology, I just don't want to read the Bible. And they only read 65 books of the Bible and only certain portions thereof. And that's not good either. We're blessed in reading this. Digging into this kind of stuff also protects against false teaching. As we've recently seen in this church, what text was used to try to dupe people into, into, this, into this strange, insidious cult thing that at least most of you are aware of what I'm talking about? Revelation. And Satan using our great ignorance with regard to prophetic scripture and apocalyptic imagery in scripture, using that ignorance to convince people or try to convince people that someone else is the Messiah. Don't ignore Revelation. Study it. Don't be, don't be afraid of debates. Let's debate. Y'all debate politics. Y'all debate sports teams. We go to ball games together. I wear my Red Sox cap. I don't care who you're cheering for. If the Red Sox are on the field, I'm going to wear my Red Sox. And we dig each other. We rib each other. But it doesn't matter that much to not go to a game together. But we still cheer them on and investigate our players and all that kind of stuff, right? Take that to another level. Just because there's intramural debates doesn't mean we just, ah, uh, it's too many different teams, we're all part of the one major league, man. At that mass rebellion that Satan leads, he loses. Jesus wins, and his saints that endure to the end conquer with him. That's our encouragement. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, thankful to you for uh, all the help that you've given us along the way in the form of those who've put in really long hours studying the book of Revelation. We're thankful that we can... Be confident that you are a conquering king, that we are part of the winning team. And even when it doesn't look like it now, we get discouraged, we get tempted to doubt or to be faint-hearted. Remind us again and again, Lord, from your word, 
that uh, we will ride behind the rider of the white horse, that we will ride in victory and gain the new earth together with Christ. Help us to be uh, mindful of that, encouraged by that. Lord, even now, as we close in this song, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and we'll close together. A mighty fortress is our 